Welcome to Precept Responsibly, a podcast working to make precepting approachable over happy hour. I'm Jason Mordino. And I'm David Hughes. Let's get into some precepting. All right, evidence-based recruitment. Uh, Dr. Brent Reed, thanks for joining us today, this evening. Uh, very interesting topic and timely as we're approaching ASHP mid-year and every RPD is either filling of excitement or, or hiding behind their door um, for the next few months. Um, so before we before we get going, why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself? Yeah, well, well, thank you for inviting me. I, I've been really looking forward to, to our conversation tonight. Um, so my name is Brent Reed, and I'm originally trained as a pharmacist. I specialize in cardiology and, and sort of practice in that area for about 10 years. Um, for eight of those years, I was also a faculty member at the University of Maryland. And one of the things that I, I noticed um, during my time there is, you know, how many of the challenges that face our profession are organizational, you know, whether that's um, you know, how do we prevent burnout in our profession or, you know, how do we find better ways to recruit and select residents? And, you know, wanting to answer those kinds of questions um, actually led me to go back to school. So I'm currently pursuing a Ph.D. in organizational science at UNC Charlotte. So I'm living that full time student life again. Brings back memories. <laughs> wow. <laughs> you are gutsy. I am. Um, I wish I had the I wish I had the fortitude to go back to school full time. Uh, after having all that experience, uh, it's phenomenal. And we definitely need more uh, organizational pharmacy-based uh, folks to, to understand like what's going on in our profession. So uh, thanks. I got my, I got my beer tonight. It's a main, it's a main, uh, main Oktoberfest from, oh man, Banded Brewery, Banded Brewing. I don't know. It looks like a really cool can. So I was excited. Figured I'd stay on the main, main bandwagon for the day. <laughs> good for you man i am i'm i'm riding water heavy today water heavy good love it yep yep i'm keeping it i'm keeping a pc uh how about you brent well i decided to go with something local so um i'm drinking uh, copper which is a an alt beer from one of my favorite breweries here in the charlotte area um old mecklenburg brewery oh nice. i have not been there either i sounds sounds cool yeah, one of the things I was really surprised to learn about Charlotte, you know, there are 50, over 50 breweries in the sort of greater Charlotte area. So, you know, it's it's um, it's tough to choose sometimes. Yeah, definitely. North Carolina's yeah. big. Mm-hmm. It's the same same thing here in Mass. I feel like there's all these all these breweries all over the place, and I don't know, it's it's wild, but they're all good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm not fussy. <laughs> So recruitment, um, when we think about recruitment for ASHP, there's, there's a lot of different activities that, that kind of encompass recruitment. There's anywhere from, you know, pre, pre ASHP mid-year, um, gearing up for that PPS interview selection, actually interviewing, bringing candidates on, and then finally the rank meeting. I think, you know, in a, in a nutshell, that kind of encompasses this, this whole recruitment process. And yet, um, you know, there, there are some objective, there is some objective, um, strategy to recruitment. Um, so Brent, um, I guess one of the first questions to, to kick us off is why, why should we strive for objective recruitment strategies? Um, you know, when we think about a recruitment process for, for residency. Yeah. So, you know, the, the science on that question is, is pretty clear. You know, when, when we are left to our own devices, we're just not that great at making decisions about people. You know, our brains are 
great at solving complex problems and we have the time to, you know, slow down, reason through all that data. But, you know, that's just not the scenario that we find ourselves in during recruitment season. You know, we're receiving, you know, potentially up to hundreds of applications. Um, each of those are, are packed with detailed information about candidates. And, and when we're overloaded with all that information, we start to rely on these, these mental shortcuts to try and catch up. And, and that's just how we're hardwired. You know, when our ancestors, they encountered a predator out in the wild, you know, they needed to size them up pretty quickly, or they got eliminated from the gene pool. And, you know, while that kind of thinking is, is great for deciding you know, whether to fight or flee, it's not great about making decisions about who the best resident is for your program. Uh, and in fact, there's some research that suggests that if you were to take your own poor judgments and create an algorithm out of them, that algorithm will actually outperform you moving forward. And, you know, I know some people aren't huge fans of, of scoring rubrics, but I think anything that adds some structure to your evaluation process is, is going to improve the quality of your decisions. So machine will outperform humans. Glad to know I, I chose pharmacy as a career. I'm, I'm totally, I'm totally messy. But Jason, you're were, you were gonna chime in before I rudely interrupted. No, you're fine, man. I think one of the things that like um I think about is like I know people that are very adamant that they have it figured out. Like I am so confident that I can walk into a room and I can tell you who's going to be good and who's going to be bad. And um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow. It's like, you could tell I was talking about you, but no, um, I, I also like suffer from that sometimes where like, I am, I, I am like overconfident in my ability to establish like who's going to be a good person and, and who's not. And I think one of the things that like blew my mind was just, like reading Daniel Kahneman's Thinking Fast mm -hmm. and Slow, which is like the basis of some of this research, basically points out that we're all overconfident in assessing our, mm -hmm. our abilities to the point where like we will make mistakes because of our overconfidence uh, and we'll be outperformed by like basic testing sometimes. Mm -hmm. So uh, I, I found that like comment about the algorithm like really interesting. Um, I every year tell my my preceptors like trust the process. Mm -hmm. trust the process and every year they look at me like I'm nuts but there uh, has to be some you know I, I feel like we'd be naive to think that we can only do it with objective evidence you know in any kind of selection process there there has to be a subjective component to it would you agree yeah it's more about like how do you add structure to guide how those decisions are made. Um, and, and actually there's, you know, some research to show that you know, like if you provide people with enough structured guidance to make decisions that actually um, novices and experts will make about similar accuracy decisions. So I think it's, it's not, you know, can we turn everything into objective criteria? It's that can we provide people with enough guidance to make more reliable decisions? So thinking forward in that, right? Like I'm the person to, to try, you know, you want to use subjective. Every human is, is natural and trying to have this subjective thing. So if you had to pick like certain things to say like, okay, this is an objective characteristic, an objective parameter that we should really hone in on um, for selection. How, what do you, like, what should that be? Is there like a gold, gold standard, if you will, using, sticking to the, to the pharmacy lingo? <laughs> well, you know, I think oftentimes we, 
we start with the data that we have and then try to use that to create our evaluation tools. Um, but really, you know, the best practice for designing a selection process is to start with the characteristics that you think is going are going to make a resident successful at your program and then work backwards to design what that selection process looks like. And Unfortunately, there's not a single blueprint that is going to work for all programs. It's really about understanding, you know, what are going to be the markers of success at your program? So like we went through this process a few years ago at Maryland, and it really resulted in some major changes to our screening and, and interview process. We started by um, forming a group of RPDs and, and preceptors, and we brainstorm a, a preliminary list of, of attributes that we thought, you know, this is what's going to make a resident successful at uh, our program. And so, you know, you'll, you'll hear me refer to those as KSAOs, so knowledge, skills, abilities, and other characteristics, so things like personality traits and, and values. And, you know, after we came up with that draft list, um, I then had the group fill out these surveys to rate each of those KSAOs on things like, you know, how necessary did they think they were, um, how important were they, and everyone was blinded during that stage of the process so that we could really get their true feelings, and the results really surprised us. You know, out of 60 KSAOs on that original draft li list that we had, the group agreed on less than half, and like, I think that was such an important lesson for us because, you know, when you're designing your evaluation process, like you want it to be based on things that people agree about, because, you know, otherwise you're going to get huge discrepancies and scores based on the person doing the rating and not on the, the actual applicant's qualifications. But do you think that that like, I don't know, does he, do you think that sets up residents for, you know, success it does not set up residents for success, knowing that every program is going to be different in their pool that they're going for. Or maybe I'm not, maybe I'm not rephrasing the question, right. But so if you, if every program has their own set of, of objective criteria, do you think like residents, future residents or resident, I'm blanking on the word I'm looking for resident um, applicants or candidates um, will strive to like, strive their personality to meet the objective criteria? Well, I think, I think there are going to be some core skills and abilities that are going to translate across programs. Like I think every program wants someone who can think critically, like every program wants someone that has good oral communication skills. And so I think there's probably going to be a core set that's going to apply across programs, but you know, I, I like to think of this, you know, this is a, a two-way street. So, you know, residents are also making decisions about the right program for them. And so I think it's incumbent on the program to be explicit about like, here are the, um, here, here's what we're looking for in, in a resident. Maybe you, you're even posting that on your website so that residents can self-select on, you know, who they're submitting their, their applications to, um, you know, so that it's based on a, a better fit between what, uh, you know, what the program's looking for. So you're saying it's okay for program X to have some objective criteria that may be completely different than program Y and still put out a, a successful resident? Yeah, I think so. I, I think as long as you're sort of meeting the, the core list of things that you know, ASHP requires as part of your accreditation standards, I think beyond that, there are things that you know, might make 
uh, a resident really successful at one program uh, and not another. So like I think about you know, research skills, for example, like some programs really emphasize research, others don't. And so I think making that clear to candidates that that's something you're looking for may help them self-select during this process and say, you know what, I, I don't see scholarship as being core to my future, uh, in my, my future career. So maybe this is not the right program for me. And, As and a... I think, and I think that's so valuable to like, for all of us as preceptors to, to really trickle down to like, you know, students that are looking for residents or, or residents going for PGY2 and, and et cetera, right? Like they always feel like, oh, I have to have certain programs rather than self-identifying like, this is what I need to accomplish. This is what I believe in mm -hmm. as a resident and you can be successful no matter what the program is. So I think that's such a valuable piece of information, Brent. Yeah, I am. Um, I'm actually reflecting on your, your KSAO discussion. I'm really struggling because I want to call it Casau. I know that's, <laughs> that's like not right, but it just keeps coming to me. Um, I, I think like I've gotten really used to being spoon fed a variety of different pieces of information from ASHP. It's like a standardized format. I get the exact same thing every time. And so like, I initially want to just like, jump right in and be like, okay, I'm going to rate them on their like letter of rec. I'm going to rate them on this. I'm going to rate them on that. Um, like it, it's kind of blowing my mind to think about it in the opposite fashion, I guess, as you start thinking about your knowledge, skills, abilities, and other characteristics, um, how do you start to align those KSAOs with the information that you're given so that you can actually start to pull those pieces out of what data you you unfortunately is given some of it's great some of it's not we can certainly talk about that too but yeah that that's a great question you know once we had that that final list of, of KSAOs that our um, RPDs and our preceptors agreed on you know we began to think about okay how are we going to actually collect that that data uh, and so fortunately we were able to turn to um, a recent meta analysis and actually um, someone actually uh, reposted this on Twitter a few days ago where basically researchers looked at a variety of different selection methods and uh, ranked them on how well they predicted future job performance and actually three of the the top five uh, methods on that list are strategies that either programs are already using or could easily use um, and could maybe with just a, a few tweaks could actually make them work a lot better um, for them. So number four on that list was work samples. So that's where you ask a candidate to do something that they would be expected to do on the job or in the training experience, and then you evaluate their performance on it. So I think a common example of how programs use that would be you know, asking candidates to complete a patient case. Um, number three on that list was uh, biographical data, which is you know, the type of information that we're often collecting from candidate CVs or, you know, the things they painstakingly retype into all those blanks on the forecast <laughs> for, yeah. you know, things like their life experiences, their accomplishments, things like that. Uh, and then actually number one on the list was structured interviews. And I think the, the key to getting the most out of those methods is figuring out, okay, how are we going to use them to tap into those, those KSAOs? So like, for example, one of ours was critical thinking. And so we decided that we were going to assess that uh, using a work sample where we assigned candidates a patient case. Now, what was really important was that pharmacotherapy knowledge did not actually make our list of KSAOs. So we weren't looking for, you know, how correct their assessment and plan was. 
we designed our, our rubric for that to assess things like, you know, could they identify key problems? Could they explain the underlying rationale for their decisions? You know, we were really trying to capture critical thinking rather than us, you know, peppering them with trivia questions about medications or, or disease states. I am uh, struggling to find words because um, that was an awesome explanation, Brett. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I I think like um, I, I think the thing that I'm most shocked about is that biographical data was as high as it was on that list. I, mm -hmm. I really thought that like um, you know work samples would have been even higher. Um, so I, I'm curious when you're like looking at someone um, and they're like. CV comes across your desk, like what kind of biographical data uh, are you looking at and what tips would you give for like the RPD or the preceptor that wants to go to their RPD and say like, hey, we should really be like focusing on these pieces to answer some of these questions and like, like we should throw these things out like they're, they're mm -hmm. useless. Like what, what some tips would you give people for that? Yeah, that's such a great follow-up question, and I'm actually glad that you you hone in on um, biographical data specifically because there's there's kind of another layer to that that you know it's really beyond the scope of this this conversation. But sort of how do you use biographical data? Um, you know, the good news is like when it comes to um, bio data specifically, is that you, you don't have to recreate the wheel. In fact, you might. Uh, end up using the same information from forecast that you're previously using, the key is just using it differently. So to give you kind of a practical example, you know, most candidates will have a section on their CV pertaining to scholarship, you know, posters that they presented, maybe even manuscripts that they have in preparation, or maybe they've even published. And so because that exists, like it might be tempting to add scholarship to your screening rubric because you know, hey, that's that's a section that, that most candidates have. But I think first you have to stop and ask yourself, is, is there something in that section? Does that mean that a candidate's actually going to be successful at your program? And if so, how does that, you know, demonstrate that they're going to be successful? So like I mentioned earlier, like if if your program expects residents to conduct a research project, to attempt to publish it, then yeah, it's probably important for you to evaluate scholarship experience and, and the extent of that. But like if your goal is for them to complete like a really good quality improvement project, which is still very important, you know, maybe you're not as interested in the scholarship as ex experience as much as you are their project management skills. And so that could come from the scholarship section, but it could also be something that they did for a professional organization. And so, you know, that hopefully that that example illustrates like you're using the same data, you're just using it, it differently. And I think that's the key to using biographical data well is just being really thoughtful about how you're extracting that information from candidate CV and just making sure that it aligns with, okay, this is what really um, portends success in our program. And right, this is all in the, in this screening period of, of screening prior to the interview. So, right, like this is only one step of the process. And I think honing those things on, on paper only represent one thing. And I guess it's, as those discussions may, may come out on the interview, um, should should the candidate get there, you know, it, it's important to, to really hone in on. I, I, I want to jump a, a little bit forward and, and think on the opposite end of the spectrum, or are there things objectively that we should be avoiding or, or less or deprioritizing in the screening process? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. So, you know, anybody that follows me on Twitter knows that I, I will never pass up an opportunity to take a swipe at letters of reference. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, you, as, as you, thank you. <laughs> so waiting you for know, it. I was waiting yeah, for it. This yeah. is your, this is your, this is your opportunity. Open mic, Brent. <laughs> yeah. So here, here's my tutorial in words, right? Um, so a, a, as you all know, letters of reference are, are probably one of the poorest predictors of future performance. And, and in many cases, like, you know, we would probably be just as, you know, well off asking for candidates, astrological signs. Um, they just don't predict future performance, at least how they're operationalized and forecast currently. And I think what's even worse than that is that there are so many opportunities for bias to, to creep in, you know, whether that's um, letter writers inflating their ratings because, you know, pharmacy is still a small world and they don't want to harm a candidate's chances. Or maybe it's something as simple as they're just using different adjectives to describe male candidates versus uh, female candidates. And so I just think until there are some major improvements to how we use references and, and how they're collected in forecasts, you know, my recommendation is this, that programs use them for, for red flags, you know, things that are just so egregious that they might disqualify a candidate, like lying to a preceptor or violating a patient's privacy or something like that. You mean things that no one ever writes in a letter of rec? <laughs> right. <laughs> I don't, I, you'd be surprised. I have seen a few, you know, pretty, pretty egregious things come, come through. Wow. <clears throat> I, wow. I struggle with, I, I struggled with this as an RPD and, and like, you know, sometimes you, you'd get letter. I don't know. I, I felt like I got to a good point where I saw a good letter. I'd read it and I'd be like, wow, this, this candidate, it, this RPD or whoever it is, speaks volume to this candidate and it, and it makes you want to, you know, it, it makes you want to prioritize that. So I guess, how do you change that culture of, of really thinking of like a, a very strong letter or a very poor letter and, and, and not using that going forward? Is there some kind of way you can use certain ones? Does this pedigree matter of who the letter writer is? Um, yeah, there I, was, any... I was actually going to add, like, I got, I got a, a best friend. If she writes a letter that is like a good letter, like I trust that as gold. Like she is, she is like the person that I've like built that level of trust. Like, is that something that like I can use? Like I, Brent, I'm well, curious I, your opinion. I, I think of a, a particular example that came up, you know, when I was an RPD a few years ago and um, we had a, a letter that was written by, um, you know, someone that, you know, well-respected RPD um, of another program and had like so many glowing things to say about a candidate. And because she knew that that candidate so well, she was also able to speak about, you know, some of their weaknesses and like, here are some things that, you know, we think they could work on. And here are some mm -hmm. things that we think would be valuable that you could teach them in this, this program. And, um, many of the people in our sort of evaluation group, like just honed in on those weaknesses and, and just like focused on them and actually ended up hurting that candidate. I think in the long run, solely because that person knew them so well that they could assess their strengths and weaknesses versus a letter writer who just, you know, it's like very surface level, but it's all positive. That person gets viewed better, even though that letter writer did not know, you know, did not know the candidate as well. And so I just, I think there's just so many problems with, with how we use them that it, it's just really hard to, you know, it's just like you're, you're comparing apples and oranges you know, across all of these, these different letters. Yeah. I'll, um, I'll bring our listeners back to, it didn't make that top four list letter letters of rec was not in that top four list biographical data, uh, work products and, uh, 
what was the first one, Brent? Oh, structured, structured interviews, interviews. Yeah. Which is a great thing, I think, for us to maybe start transitioning to and thinking about like how do we take the idea of Casaus into structured <laughs> interviews? Like, like what do you mean by a structured interview? Um, and then like how do you how do you build that into the structured interview? Yeah. So um really structured interviews basically just means that you're you're standardizing or adding a, a degree of standardization to your interview process. You know, if you think about it, interviews are just a form of data collection. So like I encourage people to think of them like research. Like if you're conducting a research study, like you wouldn't collect different data on each patient, right? Like you would collect similar data on all your patients so that you can compare everything. You can analyze that data. Now, that doesn't mean that you have to use a script, um, but I think there are at least three things that that most programs could do to structure their interviews and, and get more benefit out of them. So I think the first is um, asking situational or behavioral questions that, that are focused on your KSAO's of interest. So, you know, situational questions, um, they present candidates with a scenario and, and ask them how they would handle it. So, for example, if one of your KSAOs is time management, you know, you could ask, okay, what would you do if you had two upcoming project deadlines and you couldn't meet both of them? Now, behavioral questions are when you ask candidates about how they've demonstrated a KSAO in the past. So, uh, you know, using time management again, um, tell me about a time that you had competing deadlines. And so, you know, those types of questions, they really allow you to capture those, those difficult to assess uh, KSAOs, you know, during that, that precious little time that you have uh, with candidates. Um, so second way that you can add structure to your interviews is just asking the same pattern of questions to all of your candidates. Um, so again, this is ensuring that you're collecting the same data from each candidate and, and prevent some of that, that subtle form of bias from, from creeping in. Now, I know some people are concerned about um, the security of their questions from year to year. So I think if you're worried about that, you could always create a bank of questions for each of your KSAOs and just kind of rotate those questions, you know, from cycle to cycle. And then I think a third way that you can add structure to interviews is to um, create anchored rating scales that align with each specific question. You know, oftentimes we ask interviewers to, you know, take a, a half an hour with a candidate and, and take those responses and then extrapolate it to broad categories like oral communication skills or maybe even a global evaluation uh, of a candidate. But I think that's asking people to, you know, sort through and, and synthesize a lot of complex uh, information, which just opens the door for all those mental shortcuts that, that we were talking about earlier. So I think you can you can kind of prevent that from, you know, having interviewers rate candidates for each specific question. So if you have a question about adaptability, then like the rating scale for that question should be, you know, what are sort of varying levels of, of adaptability? What they what might they sound like in a candidate's response? Do you, do you think that 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 conversation and this probing question furthermore could could force subjectivity in that specific interview? Meaning that, you know, another candidate might not get the same type of questioning and you may be more subjectively in, in nature to pick the candidate that you probed and ask like these follow-up or conversational questions to. Well, again, I think that's, make sure I'm understanding your, your question correctly. Um, I think by making sure that you stick to, you know, a set, um, a set list or a set pattern of questions and then 
you can ask questions to make sure you get a complete answer, but it's not, you're not going off, you know, picking questions that are not, that don't pertain to your KSAOs of interest. So like, for example, like I know um, sometimes it's the tendency, you you all probably been in the room with interviewers where like the, the candidate has something on their CV about like, it's, it's in the specialty area for one of the interviewers in the room. And so they're always oncology. Yeah. Always oncology. Tell me about this oncology project. Right. And so like, I think there's a couple of problems with that. Like one, like maybe it's a really good project. And so like that, that oncology preceptor is like, this person's fantastic. Like let's put them at the top of our list or like, you know, maybe they'll judge them even harsher. And it's like, you know, that was a terrible project. And so it it like, uh, you know, negatively affects them. And so I think like, you already had a chance to look at the CV. Like the CV was part of the screening process. That data has already been collected. Like this is your time to like really get at stuff that you can't get anywhere else during the selection process. Yeah, Brent, I'm so glad you talked about like the CV like question thing. Like we debate back and forth every year about that within our program. Um, It's, yeah, it's like, people are testing like did they do this and Mm -hmm. like there are so many variables to that test they can like enter the score that they're going to get for that outcome that Mm -hmm. um it's it's really hard to like maintain objectivity in that so i'm really glad you pointed that uh particular piece out um i I also noticed you talked about kind of like like trying to synthesize an overall score for the interaction. I'm curious. I know at my shop, we have scores for each individual question. And then I have a score at the bottom that is the synthesis overall that we call mission, vision, and values fit. We spell out what that mission is, what is our vision, what's our values, how does that candidate fit to that? As I'm thinking about this, it sounds very much like I'm asking somebody to take an entire interaction and attempt to do their best to come up with a score, and I might be introducing a lot of subjectivity. So I'm curious for those programs that like try to build in like a, a fudge factor or a fit score, like, is that cool or is that like like... <laughs> you're just setting yourself up for failure. Yeah. So I can, I can mostly speak from experience because, you know, we really tried to look at fit when we underwent this process at Maryland uh, a few years ago. Um, You know, when we looked at the research on pharmacy residency selection a couple of years ago, like fit was mentioned as one of the aspects that RPDs valued the most, but you would rarely see fit defined explicitly in in any of those studies or, you know, what RPDs meant when they say uh, fit. And so like assessing candidate skills and and abilities, like that is an assessment of fit, but I don't think that's what most people mean when they use the word uh, fit. Like I think most people- Yeah, exactly. Like, like what you're saying, like it is, it's to describe sort of their instincts, their, their gut feelings about a candidate. But like, if you can't link that gut feeling to a KSAO, like I really worry that it's just like a subtle form of, of bias. And, you know, when we were you know going through this and, and redesigning our process at Maryland, we tried to develop some items to assess candidates fit on things like personal values. And when we looked at the data, um, people agreed on only a minority of them. Actually, the majority of, of sort of, you know, fit items didn't reach acceptable thresholds of agreement. So to us, it just, it, it sort of signaled that we probably shouldn't be using fit as a selection strategy, at least, at least in our program, we couldn't identify, you know, things that we could come to consensus on. Sounds like you're, sounds like Jason's got 
might might be implementing some changes. Jason's got a lot of work to do this year. Brett, <laughs> um, I um I, I've been hearing a lot. So you know what I've heard is right. Um, you know, be objective, right? Be objective. You know, it's okay to have different objective criteria and develop your Jason. What are you calling it? Casal. Casal. Your Casal is specific to your program. You know, you're you're using structure in that objective finding in the interview to relate to your. Casal, I want to like scream. <laughs> so, is there even a point to doing like a rank meeting if everything is done perfectly structured? Like at the end of the interview, if everyone scores based on objective findings, right? Every pro, many programs that I know of do this large rank meeting. You don't talk about rank meeting. It's like the golden rule of <laughs> pharmacy residency programs. And we do this just so we can argue back and forth about where to move somebody to introduce introduce all the subjectivity that you just told me not to do. Don't you dare take my rank meeting away from me. <laughs> I know, I know JJ, it's a fun thing. You know, it's, it's always fun. Everyone looks forward to it, but, but really it's exactly that. It's, it's right. It's to, it's to have these instincts and to subjectively move people around <laughs> after you just put forth all of this subjectivity. So is there a point of it? I, I'm really curious your, your perspective on, on, on the rank. Well, that you were saying there, um, I thought for a moment there, you said, you know, we don't talk about the rank meeting. So it's like a fight club. Like, you know, we don't talk about fight club, right? So we, don't talk that, about we, we play that song at the oh beginning. Let's <laughs> talk about it. I'm, so, I'm going to get in trouble. Yeah, I have, I have the three rules of rank rank club is what we call it. Uh, thou shalt not talk about rank club. Thou shalt not talk about rank club. Uh, and and uh, thou shalt not talk about rank club. Uh, so, yeah, I do put that meme up on the screen. Well, you know, this, this might be a hot take, but like, I think that rankless meetings have the potential to do more harm than good. Like, I think, you know, all the strategies that we've talked about today, um, you know, Dave, as you were saying, like they're, they're intended to limit bias to the extent possible. Like we're never going to get rid of it, but you know, can we limit it to the extent possible? And, And these strategies are really designed to do that. And I think by, bringing everybody back into the room, like you, you not only run the risk of reintroducing all of those, those biases that you've, you've tried to limit, like you might also introduce some new ones. Like maybe there's a, a senior preceptor whose opinion, like just holds a lot of sway uh, over the group. And they're able to make, you know, huge impacts on how you end up rating candidates that are totally different from how people uh, rated them in the meeting. And because there's, you know, respect for that person, you know, the, the group kind of goes along with that. So it kind of introduces some of those group biases that might've been absent from, you know, some of these other aspects of the, the selection process. Like, I think if you have a really well-designed process, like you probably don't need a rankless meeting unless it's like, maybe you need to break a tie among candidates who have, you know, the same or, or similar scores, or, or maybe there's some candidates who, whose scores are so low that you don't even want to rank them at all. And, and so I think those might be some, some uses for a rank leading, uh, rank meeting, but outside of those couple of exceptions, I, j- I just worry that the, the rankless meetings might override our efforts to try and limit bias in, in the selection process. Thank you for confirming my suspicions, Brent. I, um, as much as like I have all these like rules around my rank meeting, and and we talk about them in like joking fashion, and I always try to remind people like trust the process. It all is because I ultimately like would love to just get rid of my rank meeting, <laughs> <laughs> like and just trust the process. Um, so uh, yeah, I I find more often than not it's just further discussion of moving people around, and then there's no good linking to those 
Casals as to why you're making those changes. So um, I, I agree with you there. Uh, it may be a hot take, and, and certainly I know like a bunch of my preceptors will be ringing, <laughs> ringing their hands as they hear this, and I'll probably be getting a few emails. But um, you know, something that I think you know we should continue to push the co- the conversation uh, forward. Um, I think as we're starting to think about like wrapping up, um, if you are a really busy RPD, say in November, you've got recruitment coming up in December and January, and you've only got limited time to get something off the ground now, where would you start? And what would you maybe plan for the following year and the year after to try and like really start bringing yourself towards objectivity? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think probably where I would start would be with the screening process, just because like that is where, you know, the biggest funnel is like where you go from a large number of uh, applicants, um, you know, down to a a very narrow, um, you know, narrow number of of interview um, candidates, people that you bring in for interviews. You know, I don't know if this has been, you know, the experience at, at your program, but, you know, I feel like once you get to the interview process, um, like especially, you know, maybe you bring in 20 people for interviews, like, you know, the top, you would be happy with, you know, probably most, if not all of those top 20. And so like the key is like, if you can make, if you can get to that that top 20 um, and then put your effort there, then that's probably a better return on investment than like putting all this time into your, your interviews. Cause maybe by the time they get to the interviews, like you could flip a coin and get great candidates for, for your, your program. And so I think that there's, if you've got limited time, probably the best ROI is like focusing on the, the screening. Like how can you use that, that bio data um, in, in a, in a, in a good way to, to get, what are those characteristics that are going to predict success in your program? Thank you. Now I know where to start. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, it's, yeah. it's, it's so, it's so true, Brent. I mean, again, like, again, I've, I've don't get me wrong. I, I'm, I'm one of Jason's biggest fans of his, of his rank meeting when I was there and it, it's fun, but again, I, I felt like you could send, you always sense like, you know, right. The, the subjectivity coming out, mm-hmm. um, even myself as an RPD, you know, you, you try and move people around. It's like, what am I doing? You know, you just got to trust your objective, your objective findings. So I, I appreciate all your insights on that. It, it truly is. Um, I, I guess as we, uh, we close down, Brad, I, I won, uh, first and foremost, want to thank you for, for taking the time to, to spend your evening with us, go through some of this. I know it's a, it's usually a hot topic. You had some hot takes. Um, ultimately, thank you. Um, one, one question we always ask our listeners is, is what is one thing you took from a preceptor or mentor that you continue to use in your practice today? Yeah. So when thinking about that question, um, I was reminded of a piece of advice that we were given as residents when we were preparing to work our first clinical weekend shift, like all by ourselves. And and I know this is probably going to sound a bit unconventional, um, but one of our preceptors told us, don't be a hero. And like, what he meant by that was like, don't create unrealistic expectations of yourself that, that like you can't sustain uh, over the long term. And like he he only meant it in the context of like the weekend shift. But I think you can apply that advice to like a lot of things. Like I think as pharmacists, we 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 tend to make our lives more difficult by always going above and beyond or always feeling like we have to like really prove ourselves. But I think that like 
being the hero all the time, like that's just not a sustainable way to work. And like, it's probably one of the reasons why we see, you know, so much burnout in, in our profession. That's an awesome, that's, that's an awesome piece of advice. It, it really is. I feel like I have to drop my cape right now. <laughs> Brent, thanks uh, for taking the time tonight. We really appreciate everything, all the insight. Thanks again, Brent, for coming. I've been following you a long time on Twitter. Love your content. Um, it, it's always very thoughtful. And um, I can say like in preparing for this uh, session, like I had a lot of fun thinking about like how to uh, use my time as wisely as possible. Um, so hopefully maybe we can use it again in the future and, and get you back on here at some point. Um, we have lots of questions for you and you, you always, you never fail to give some, some great answers. So thank you. Um, if people want to get in touch with you, how can they reach out? Uh, probably the best way to, is to find me on, on Twitter. So Brent and Reed um, is my handle there. And I, I'm at least sticking around for now. <laughs> great. Uh, well, I'll still be on the platform as well for now. And uh, I'll certainly be happy to engage with you in the conversation. Uh, if our listeners have an extra 60 seconds to hang around, Make sure you get the the summary of today's episode from our producer. Uh, leave us a, a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify if you can. A rating is always uh, appreciated. And uh, spread the word to your friends about Precept Responsibly. Thanks, y'all, for listening. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us for Precept Rapidly. Uh, my name is Spencer. I'm the producer of Precept Responsibly. And this is the segment where I go over uh, some key learning elements from the point of view of a new preceptor. Um, so data-driven recruitment with Brent. I like the first thing he highlights is that uh, people are bad at selecting other people. Um, and commenting on the evolutionary and biologic benefit of making these quick subjective decisions, um, it might be something that benefits us um, in specific situations, but probably not during recruitment. There is a benefit of having some objective parameters to look at. And so to avoid the interviewer defaulting to their own personal judgment, we need to be able to define what these objective parameters are. Um, and this is not one size fit all for uh, every single program. You must identify what would make a good resident for your program specifically. Uh, looking at Brent's process where he brainstorms a list of potential criteria, disseminating that to preceptors for a blinding and ranking and reviewing and really narrowing down to the most important aspects for your program. What you're going to be left with is identified knowledge, skills, abilities, and other characteristics, uh, which is KSAO or CASAO if you're Jason Mordina. Once you've identified these, you have to really figure out how you're going to obtain the data necessary um, to assess all of these different criteria for every individual applicant. The application itself will come with some excellent biographical data, which can be beneficial if you are able to use it effectively. Um, so when you're going into this next step, the interviews, what you're really thinking is, how do I develop this interview to identify these key components that I want to look at uh, that I was not able to appropriately assess uh, prior to this point? And if you develop your interview in that way, you're going to have all the information you need to make an incredibly informed decision. Um, looking at some of the elements that uh, Brent might not put as much stock in, uh, the letters of recruitment, or uh, letters of recommendation, excuse me. Um, I think of these as incredible insights on how a student would perform, and I'm thinking past performance likely will predict uh, future performance to some extent. Uh, the problem here is that your letter writers are going to focus on the best attributes of, um, of the students, and they may be generic, they might not be able to really identify the nuances. Um, 
or the differences between different individuals. Um, in addition, someone that might be a stellar letter of recommendation writer might comment on some of the residents or the future resident students' areas of improvement. Um, and while that is probably appropriate, it might draw negative attention if other letters of recommendation writer are not focusing on those uh, types of uh, areas for improvement. And lastly, commenting on the rank meeting. I think it's a really good topic, and as far as I know, many programs do use a rank meeting. Uh, I think it's an opportunity for preceptors to advocate for um, individuals in ways that they think might not have come across during the interview. Uh, unfortunately, by default, by definition, this rank meeting is bringing in subjective information to what was intended to be an objective assessment. Um, so the question of if it's doing more harm than good, I personally found very interesting. Um, I am excited to take what I've learned from Brent and incorporate it into uh, the recruitment process at my own institution. Uh, and I hope you all um, do the same. Thank you all for listening and have a good rest of your week. Hope you all enjoyed today's episode. We thank you for listening. Uh, I just want to remind people if you have an idea for an episode or you want to drop an audio comment or question, uh, you know, record yourself 30 seconds uh, on your phone, send it to us uh, at preceptresponsibly at gmail.com. We also are on social media, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn. Find all of our episodes on your favorite podcast providers. We also have these as videos on YouTube. Today's episode was produced by Spencer Sutton. Music by Alex Grohl. That's it for Precept Responsibly. I'm Jason Mordino. And I'm Dave Hughes. Until next time, thanks all for listening. I was going to drop a joke, but I lost it. <laughs> you confused me, Spencer.